So as uh, Ryan mentioned, we're kind of in a, a mini-series right now, three-week-long mini-series, zeroing in on the family. And last week, we spoke about marriage, and we talked about the relationship between wives and husbands out of uh, Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. And today, now we're shifting gears, and we're looking at verses 20 and 21, and then next week, we'll cover the rest of the passage that Seth just read for us. But you know, last week as we were talking about marriage together, that was for anyone here who is married or has been married, convicting and challenging, you know, to sit and listen to God's high calling for what it looks like to be a spouse. And if you were hoping that this week you were going to get a week off and you were going to get a break, uh, you're in for a rude awakening because now we're talking about parenting and uh, that is obviously another area where there are many mistakes that are made. But this is not just a message on parenting. This is actually a text, it's two verses, but it's a text on parent-child relations. And so this is a message that half is going to speak to children and the other half is going to speak to parents. And I just want to say at the outset that this message is not meant to hurt you, it's meant to help you. And again, as a parent, I know as I was studying and preparing this week that the Holy Spirit was convicting me and showing me areas where I've failed my children. And as a son, God was convicting me even as I thought back on my own childhood and all the ways that I fell short of God's high calling for me as a Christian son. And so all of us are going to listen to today's teaching, and every person here is a son or a daughter, And many of us in this room are parents or grandparents. And we're all going to listen to this sermon and be convicted and challenged and maybe a little bit beat up in different ways. But the point is not to beat us down. God has given us his word and given us guidance for our families to help us, to bless us. And if you're a Christian here today, then we can look at all of our past failures as parents or as children And we can know that those things have been nailed to the cross of Jesus and we're forgiven. And not only that, we can look forward in our parenting or forward in our uh, relationship to our parents as children with hope and optimism, knowing that God's grace is available to empower us now to do better than we've done in the past, to see growth and to see improvement. And so I just want all of you to hear this sermon today through that lens. Got it? Okay, awesome. Then let's get into it. Verse 20, we're shifting gears now, and Paul is going to now address children. He writes to children. So let's look at the verse again, and then we'll unpack it. So Paul writes in Colossians 3.20, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Now first, I just want to notice something together here. Notice that the Apostle Paul, as he writes this letter to this church at Colossae, Paul is expecting that children will be present in the church service as this letter is read. Paul's instructions when he wrote these letters to churches is that they they would be publicly read to the congregation. And Paul is directly here addressing children. And he has a command for them. And so there's an expectation from Paul that kids are present in the worship service as this letter is read. And this morning we have many children in here with us. And it's appropriate for us at times to have children in here. And really any parent that wants their children to be in here every Sunday, that's appropriate. And so this is not to dismiss the value of a children's ministry, but it is to emphasize the importance of having children sitting together with their parents, learning together, watching their parents worship and hearing the word of God taught to them. And so for the children here today, God has a word for you. God wants to instruct you. God wants to guide you children in how to please him and how to grow and how to live faithfully for Jesus. And so we're going to be speaking to children here. Now the context of the Christian household in Colossians presupposes that the children that Paul is writing to are young enough to still be under the authority of their parents. They have not yet established their own household units. 
We see further evidence of this in the parallel passage, which is in Ephesians chapter 6. And we're going to look a lot at Ephesians 6 today. But in that parallel passage, here's what Paul writes in verse 4. Notice the similarity. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. So same command he gives in Colossians. But he's going to add a little bit more there. He says, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So the, the children that Paul is speaking to here in Colossians and also over in Ephesians are needing to still be brought up. They're still being reared as children. So these are younger children that are under the authority of their parents. Now in the culture that we all live in, 18, right, the age 18, is where a child formally transitions into adulthood. And all of a sudden, they are viewed by the state and the broader community as an adult. And so let us in the first place think of Paul's instruction here to children as applying to minor children who are still under their parents' authority. Now, of course, the waters get really muddy after that, right? And lots and lots of emerging adult children, so I'm thinking kind of 18 and beyond, struggle with how their relationship toward their parents should change in those years that are transitional for them. Not to mention the struggles that many parents feel about how, do, how does this relationship between, in my, between me and my adult children now shift since they're beyond 18. Now I just want to touch on this briefly because it's such an important question. And I know in our church we've got college students, we've got young adults that find themselves in that place. And we have many parents in our church as well who have young adult children. I think it's helpful to go back to Paul's parallel passage in Ephesians. I want to read the first three verses as we're thinking about this idea. In Ephesians 6, Paul says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. So again, same, essentially, same thing he says here. But then in verse 2, he says, Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So Paul says the same thing in Ephesians, obey your parents, but then he also goes back to the Ten Commandments, and specifically the Fifth Commandment. And so he's, he's sort of taking this idea of obedience, and he's, he's putting that under a larger framework of honoring your father and your mother. That idea of honoring your parents is the general principle. It's the general framework for how a child is supposed to relate to their parents. That never, ever ends. If you're 60 and your parents are alive, you are still supposed to honor your mother and your father. Now, when you're a child who is under the authority of their parents, so kids, I'm talking to you, teens, I'm talking to you, when you are under the authority of your parents, a major way that you honor mom and dad is by obeying them. In fact, I would say the major way that you honor mom and dad as you are still under their authority is by obeying them. But the dynamic shifts in adulthood when you are now responsible to determine your own family policy. So the dynamic shifts there and all of a sudden honoring mother and father not equal direct unconditional obedience like it did when you were under their authority. So you still honor them, but honor does not look like direct, unconditional obedience. Well, what does it look like? The word honor means to respect or to give recognition. To respect or to give recognition. We're going to talk about giving respect in a few minutes. That idea of giving recognition then, is such a wonderful way to think about what it means to honor somebody. You're recognizing in front of other people positive attributes about that individual. And I really want to challenge uh, all, all children, but especially emerging adults here today, to think about what that might look like. What does it look like to give recognition to your parents as you honor them? Um, I was listening to a podcast recently that Seth sent me, actually, and there was a, a guy talking there, and him and his wife had dropped their daughter off at college. And so, like, 
so many parents do. They actually went to the college with her. They helped her get set up in the dorm and everything. And as they were there, this daughter, this 18-year-old daughter, who's just now meeting all of her new dorm mates, she was going around to these other gals and she was saying, you have to meet my dad. He's the wisest man you'll ever meet. And she's connecting all of these new little friends of hers to her dad. And the, the man talking on the podcast, he said when he got back to the hotel that room, or hotel room that night, his wife said to him, hey, did you notice the way that your daughter was honoring you today? What a beautiful picture of giving recognition to her dad in, in the presence of these other people. Now, obviously, there's a lot of other positive dynamics that must have been going on in that relationship. This dad must have been an honorable and wise man to earn that sort of recognition from his daughter. But I think it's important for us to remember that all of us can find things that are praiseworthy about other people. As a pastor, I've done enough funerals to know that's true. I've done funerals for people who were not necessarily praiseworthy people. And I've known that about them. They had a lot of uh, problems and issues in their life. But guess what happens at a memorial service? Every single person sits and thinks to themselves about the positive qualities that they can find. Every person who talks about that person's life is able to highlight and give praise for the positive qualities in that individual's life. And so I think for all of us, we should be able to, to, to think about things that are worthy of being recognized and affirmed and honored in our parents. But the question again is, how do we think about that transition from dependent minor to independent adult? The answer is, it's complicated. And every situation is unique. Every family dynamic is unique and requires some wisdom and some discernment and some thoughtfulness. But I want to just offer a general principle that I think if you're a parent with emerging adults, or if you yourself are an emerging adult, you can think of this general principle, and then try to flesh that out in your own situation. The general principle is this. To the degree you still expect your parents to take responsibility for you, you are still under their authority and therefore expected to obey them. Let me say it differently, and I think I have it this way on the screen. The degree to which I'm under the authority of my parents is directly proportional to the degree of responsibility they take for me. What do I mean by that? Well, let me put a chart up on the screen and just try to think about this for a moment. On the bottom here, you've got 0% in the corner there. If your parents are taking, and if your expectation is that your parents are taking zero responsibility for your life, meaning... You have to go to the language of Genesis. You've left your father and mother and you've gone out and established yourself as a new family unit so that your parents are taking 0% responsibility. Then there is zero direct authority over you at that moment or at, at that point in your life, I should say. But to the degree that your parents are taking responsibility for you, notice that the authority that they exercise over you is proportional to that. So think of different scenarios. Again, every family, every person is going to have to apply this to their own situation. But think about it like this. There's a big difference between a 19-year-old who is living at home, who has no job, who mom and dad are paying the mortgage, all of the utilities, supplying the food that is in the refrigerator, paying for your car payment and your gas and your insurance and your on mom and dad's health insurance, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, that, that's one version of being 19 where mom and dad are taking a ton of responsibility for your life still. And so you should expect that mom and dad might have some say-so in decisions that you're making and things that you're doing. Now that's different from a 19-year-old who is off at college has a part-time job, is paying for a lot of their own things, and maybe mom and dad are paying tuition or something. That's a different looking dynamic where there's a lesser degree of expected responsibility that mom and dad are taking, and therefore there's certainly a lesser degree of direct authoritative leading over you. And still all of that is different from a 19-year-old who joined the army, let's say, and 
how's that career going? And mom and dad are not taking care of anything in their life. That is, that individual has separated themselves from their parents' authoritative structure at that point. Now, again, there's so much more to be said about this. But there is a relationship between the responsibility the parents have over you and the authority that they therefore have over you. Now, back to our text here. Paul is writing to children who are under the authority of their parents. And the command here is obey your parents in everything. What does that mean? Well, the word obey, I'm going to put it on the screen, means to submit to the authority of or to carry out a command or instruction. Okay? So to obey somebody is to do what they've asked. Now, the Greek word here is interesting because it has a nuance to it, and it's a nuance of hearing and then doing. Hearing and then doing. And I think that's so helpful. And so, kids, if you're wondering what it means to obey mom and dad, to obey your parents, think of it like this. It means to hear and to do what mom and dad are saying to you. So children, the first thing to focus on, if you want to be pleasing to the Lord, is hearing your parents. Now, sometimes, never mind, I won't go there. Um, Sometimes, sometimes I have to just reject thoughts and ideas that come to me when I'm preaching. But sometimes, this is what it looks like. I'm going to just talk about a hypothetical home. So don't imagine that this is Daniel Hooper's home, but sometimes this is what it looks like. So I'm on the couch, okay, and I'm the kid, and I'm watching TV, and then you hear from the other room, Daniel, and here's a response. And then a moment later, you hear again, Daniel, and here's the response. And then the third time, Daniel, and then here's the response, huh? And I want to encourage you children with this. This is the main point I want to say about hearing, is that what we need to do as kids under the authority of our parents is you need to train your ear to your parents' voice. What I mean by that is that you as a child should be able to hear mom and dad's voice above the voices of your brothers and sisters that you're playing with. Above the voices of the the movie that you're watching. Above the voices of the video game that you're playing. Above the voices of your friend who is on FaceTime that you're talking to. Mom and dads, and, and I try to tell my boys this often, our voices are the most important voices in your world right now. So again, when mom or dad say something, you should perk up. Your ear should be trained to my voice. And it's not a good excuse if I call to my sons down the hall and I know I have a loud voice. My wife tells me all, this, all, all the time. But if I call to my children down the hall, it is not a valid excuse to say, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. You need to tune or train your voice or your ear, rather, to hear dad's voice. And so if the sound of your parents' voice does not immediately command your attention, then you're not obeying them as you should. Now, I want to tell you that if you get really good at this, children, if you get really good at training your ear to the important voices in your life, it will bless you for the rest of your life. In fact, in the Ephesians version of this, where Paul talked about Uh, obeying your parents, and then he said, honor your mother and father, and he goes back to the Ten Commandments. He attaches a promise to your obedience, and it is a promise in the Ten Commandments, and it goes like this. This is the promise, that it will go well with you and that you may live long in the land. If you master These principles that God has for you as a child under your parents' authority, it will bless you for the rest of your life. This skill, training your ear to the important voices of your life, will pay you dividends. It will bless your friendships. Because your friends will see you as an engaged listener 
They'll feel valued by you. They'll feel respected by you. It'll bless your teachers if you train your ear to their voice. It'll bless your coaches if you play sports or you're athletic. It'll bless your future spouse. It'll bless your boss someday. And on and on it goes. So the first thing Paul says to children has to do with hearing, training your ears to your parents' voice. But the second step is doing. Obedience is not just hearing dad's voice or mom's voice. Obedience is not even just hearing and understanding what was said. That still falls short of obedience. Obedience is hearing mom and dad and then doing what mom and dad are asking you. I've borrowed something from Justin and Lisa Cook that I use with my children often. I've modified it a little bit. His version is better. We just sorted that out in my office an hour ago. Um, His version is better, but I've modified it. But it goes like this. I tell my boys this. I say, you need to do what dad says when I say it with a good attitude. That's just the expectation. What I say, when I say it, and with a good attitude. And I think that that idea really, really supports the biblical understanding of obedience between children and their parents. So if mom and dad ask you to take out the trash, you do it right then. You just do it. If mom and dad tell you, you need to do your homework, you get on your homework. You don't get on it when you want. You get on your homework. If mom and dad say you need to be home by 10 p.m., guess what? Be home by 10 p.m. It's hearing and understanding and then doing the things that mom and dad are asking. And kids, listen, just like developing the first skill I talked about, training your ear to the important voices in your life, just like that will bless you for the rest of your life, to develop the skill of doing what you're asked. Seeing that task through, following through with it, that will bless you for the rest of your life. We'll talk about this more next week, but a big part of being a great employee is that when your manager or your supervisor or your boss gives you something to do, they never have to think about it again. What I mean is that you hear and you do, and so your boss never gives it a second thought. If you want to frustrate and exasperate your manager or your boss, be the kind of employee that is told to do something and then has to be reminded over and over and over and over again to get something done. Now, for the record, this is not targeted at any of my staff, okay? (laughs) My staff is awesome, but Listen, as children, as you learn to do the things that your parents teach you, it will be a blessing for your future. It's going to train you in what obedience looks like in other authoritative relationships. So children, hear and do what your parents ask. That's what obedience looks like. Now, of course, and we talked about this last week, all human authority is not absolute. So there are no realms of human authority that are completely absolute and you always obey regardless. Even the authority of parents is not absolute. The Ephesians passage gives us the qualifying principle. This is Ephesians 6.1. Children, obey your parents. Here's the key. In the Lord, for this is right. So Paul has in mind here as he's talking about the household Children and parents who are in the Lord, meaning that they are seeking to glorify and honor and obey and live for Jesus Christ. You should expect then that anything that such a parent would demand of their children would be something that that child could do with a clear conscience. And if any parent, Christian or otherwise, were asking their child to do something evil or ungodly, that child would not be faulted by God for refusing. But Paul's not talking about that. Again, Paul is talking about the Christian household. I said earlier, as a child under the authority of your parents, the major way you honor them is through obeying them. But what else does it look like to honor your parents? Let's quickly talk about that. Again, the definition of the word is to show respect or to give recognition. So to honor your parents, and again, this continues to apply long after you're out of the house as well. But to honor your parents is to respect your parents, to show them respect. 
So I just want to challenge you to think about three things in relation to how well you're respecting your parents. Number one is, how do you talk to your parents? When you're in conversation and communication with your parents, how do you talk to them? Are you rude? Do you talk back to your parents? Do you roll your eyes? Are you sarcastic? Do you yell at your parents? If that's the way that you speak to your parents, you need to change that. That's not honoring to them. That's not respecting your mother and your father. Here's another thing. Not just how you talk to your parents, but how you talk about your parents. And I feel like a lot of people, a lot of us, myself included, can look at the things that we've said about our parents to other people and realize, okay, that wasn't honoring. That was not respectful. So kids, how do you speak about your parents when you're talking about them to other people? Teens, how do you speak about your parents when you are talking to other people? Is it, oh man, my mom and dad, they're so dumb or they're so out of touch. They don't get it. Or they frustrate me so bad. They're so irritating to me. I can't stand to be around them. Think about it. How do you speak about your parents to other people? Are you respecting them? Are you giving recognition to your parents? Third and finally, think about your attitude toward your parents. Are you just a kind person toward your parents? Do you enjoy being in their presence or are you frustrated by mom and dad's presence? Do you want to get out from under their presence, get away from them? As children, one of the main ways to show your faith and trust in God and that he is good and wise to give you parents is by obeying your parents and respecting them. So at the end of the day, your obedience to mom and dad is actually not about mom and dad. At the end of the day, your obedience to mom and dad is about the Lord. Because it's not about having, if mom and dad are perfect parents or if they do everything right and they've never made a mistake. Because guess what? Your parents will make mistakes. But God doesn't. God is perfect. And God is perfect in all of his ways toward you. And therefore, God is worthy of your obedience. And God is telling you as a child, I've given you a mom and dad to help you and to bless you. And I'm telling you to obey them. So as you obey mom and dad, you're showing that you trust in God. And one day, kids, you will likely have children of your own. And when you do, if you do, believe me when I tell you, you're going to find out that being a parent is really, really hard. And all the parents said, amen. And you're going to be blown away, kids, at how much energy and effort is required to parent children. And whatever grade you're giving mom and dad right now, oh, my mom and dad, they get a C plus. Whatever grade you're giving them now, I can almost certainly guarantee when you're a parent yourself, you're going to slide that up just a little bit. You know, maybe the C plus is wrong. Maybe it's more like an A minus. So be gracious as children right now and respect your parents and honor them and obey them. And as you do, you are pleasing the Lord and you will be a blessing to your parents. Speaking of parents... It's time to talk to parents. Verse 21, let's shift gears. Now he says, fathers, in verse 21, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Now, like last week, when we were at the point where I was preaching to husbands and I had to be very clear, I am not a perfect husband. And even as I'm telling you to do things, I'm not doing all these things perfectly. I have to say that again. As I speak to fathers, specifically and parents in general, I am not a perfect parent, far from it. And so, so much of what I want to say to you, I'm not saying this from a place of, I can check all these boxes, just be like me. I'm saying this from a place of, we all need help. And help is going to come through God's word. And so I want to share God's word with you as one struggling parent to another he says, fathers, and I just want you to note there again the concept of male headship that we talked last week about. Okay, In verse 20, the children are responsible to obey parents, mother and father. And so what Paul's going to say to parents here is going to apply to mother and father. Moms can provoke their children just as easily as dads can. But Paul specifically addresses the fathers because the fathers are the ultimate symbol of authority in that home. 
And so this underscores that principle we talked about last week, namely the idea of male headship. But there's only one instruction here for parents and for fathers specifically, and it is do not provoke your children. What does that mean? The word provoke means make resentful, irritate, stir to anger, or exasperate. So do not provoke your children. Now, Paul seems particularly concerned in this letter with authority in Christian households. And and he really has the flavor of that authority as as a big concern for him. Remember last week as he spoke to husbands, the command was do not be harsh with your wives. And now in regards to children, the command is do not provoke your children. Or in Ephesians, don't provoke your children to anger. So Paul is concerned about the flavor of authority in a Christian household. And we have to remember that there is a difference between being an authority and being authoritarian. There is a difference between being an authority and being authoritarian. This cannot be said to us enough that a man's leadership in the home is to be modeled after Jesus Christ. And therefore, the leadership should be marked by gentleness and patience and kindness and grace and love. And as we talked about last week, service. That is the flavor of leadership and authority in a Christian home and in Christian relationships. Paul is writing in a world 2,000 years ago where the authority of a man in a home was unquestioned. And to be a domineering man was normal and mainstream. There was nobody who would call that out and rebuke that. That was an expectation. And Paul is saying, not among those of us who are followers of Jesus, because that's not how our Lord leads. He's gentle. He's kind. And so Paul is concerned that in these Christian homes, fathers in particular are gentle. Now he helps us to see what's at stake here. He says, lest they become discouraged. Some translations say, or lest they lose heart. The idea here, and this is so heavy, parents, this is is what's at stake. The idea is that your children can become so discouraged that they just give up trying to please their parents. They just throw in the towel. Dad and mom will never be happy with me. I can't do it. I can't can't please them. And they lose heart. That's what this Greek word means. Don't provoke your children, he says, lest they become discouraged, lest they lose heart. Godly parenting leads to the building up of our children, children, not to battering down our children. Our children ought to feel encouraged because of their relationship with us, not be given over to discouragement. I can remember playing on a soccer team when I was about eight or nine years old. And there was a kid on my team, and he was not a terrible soccer player. He wasn't the all-star, but he was okay. But his dad stood on that sideline week in and week out. And just berated this kid, yelling at him. Come on, what are you doing? Who taught you to kick like that? Hustle, just yelling. And this kid on my team, I'll tell you, even as an eight-year-old kid, I could just see the shoulders down. You could see that look of just utter discouragement on this kid's face. It was like he had given up. He just tuned out his dad. He was so broken over that form of parenting over him. And I just want to remind all of us, listen, our kids have so many people in this world that are there to discourage them. They do. Whether it's a bully at school or a callous teacher or a harsh coach that they're going to have or an unloving boyfriend or girlfriend or a really cruel and manipulative boss someday, they're going to have plenty of people that just beat them down and discourage them. And as parents, far be it from us to pile it on. Far be it from us to not strive with everything in us to be encouragers 
for our children, building them up, pouring into them, and loving them. How can parents provoke their children? The answer to that is there's a lot of ways, but I'm just going to give you four quick ideas. Number one, what I've already talked about, being authoritarian. What I mean when I use the word authoritarian is I mean being domineering, being harsh, belittling, being impatient, or being hyper-controlling. It's that, that lording over, it's that type of authority and leadership that is just harsh and controlling. That can provoke your children. Secondly, being hypocritical. This is the old do as I say, not as I do style of parenting. I used to be a youth pastor for a number of years and I worked with tons of teenagers. And the majority of these teenagers were coming from Christian homes, quote unquote Christian homes. And now some of those were genuinely, authentically Christian homes. But I, I was able to see firsthand so many teenagers who were being brought by mom and dad to the church and were being told by mom and dad, you're a Christian and this is how you need to li live and these are the things that you need to do. And yet those children were exasperated because of the hypocrisy because these parents would come to church every week and they would put on that front and then they would demand and that their children live like Christians, and then when they would leave the church, mom and dad were so different. They weren't living out any of this. And this would discourage their kids and oftentimes push these children away from the faith rather than drawing them into the faith. Now, this does not mean that as parents we're perfect, of course, but it means that by God's grace we're striving for consistency and authenticity in our faith. So being hypocritical, that can exasperate your children as they see glaring inconsistencies. Number three, being legalistic. Now legalism is the attempt to earn God's favor through your own righteousness. So legalism is saying, okay, how do I get into God's good graces? How do I experience God's blessing? Well, I have to be righteous. And if I live up to a certain standard, I'm accepted, I'm loved, etc. Now, the gospel is the opposite of legalism, right? The gospel says that we are accepted by God and loved by God, and we belong by grace quite apart from our works of righteousness. The gospel says if it was about your righteousness, you would never make it. But it's about Christ's righteousness for you. And so we are accepted by God through grace or by grace. A legalistic parent is a parent who communicates in subtle and sometimes not so subtle ways to their children that the way to be in my good graces is through your goodness or your righteousness. And what that looks like played out is that when a child is living up to my standards, I love you. When a child is living up to my standards, I accept you. When you live up to my standards, I want to be around you and I'm pleased with you. But when you don't live up to dad and mom's standards, you're unworthy. And this can exasperate children quickly. This type of parent often is way more concerned about a child's behavior than a child's heart. And I think as Christian parents, we are not just after robotic actions and, and good behavior. That matters. But more than that, we care about shepherding their precious hearts. Helping them to understand who God is in part through the way that we parent them. Okay, number four, being perfectionists. Being perfectionists. This can exasperate our children. When we have unreasonable expectations and standards set for our children. When we, even though we know we're not perfect, when we demand perfection from our own children. This often leads to being hypercritical. And this often leads to children feeling defeated and giving up. I can't reach that standard. I'll never make mom and dad happy. I'll never please them. So we cannot give into the temptation to be perfectionists. So dads, moms, our parenting should be marked by encouragement, uplifting, and affirmation. With that said, I need to say this because it's very important. That does not mean that in our parenting we do not correct that we do not confront sin, and that we do not discipline our children. It's true, a domineering and overbearing parent is a problem. 
but so is the opposite end of the spectrum, an indifferent parent. And God is calling us to be in the middle of that, that we are engaged and we are involved, that we don't fall prey to being domineering and overbearing, but we also don't slip off the other side and just have no role or think that we have no role in uh, discipline and instruction with our children. We see this clearly in Ephesians 6, 4, where Paul says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. And then here's, here's the idea. He says, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So the negative command is don't provoke your kids. But there's a positive side to this. And the positive side is disciple your kids through discipline and instruction. The idea for discipline comes right there in Ephesians 6, 4. But bring them up in the discipline. Now there is a style of parenting nowadays in which the parents only want to affirm. The parents don't ever want to correct or confront or stand in opposition to what their children want to do. They only want to affirm. It's the kind of parent who wants to be their child's best friend, not their parent. Friends, your, your kids will have many friends throughout their childhood, but they only have one set of parents. That's our responsibility to parent our children. Should we want to have friendly relations with our kids? Of course we should. But at the end of the day, we are not just trying to be friends here. We are trying to disciple our children to love Jesus and to learn to love people. Godly discipline is an act of love. Here's how it's put in Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 5. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So if you're loved by God, you experience discipline and correction from God. He goes on to say, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Now there's a key there that we have to understand. And it's that God's discipline of us is for our good. That we might share in his holiness. Discipline, let me give you two definitions from different encyclopedias in my office. That word discipline means, number one, learning that molds character and enforces correct behavior. Number two, it refers to discipline or instruction that is used to train a person in the way that is right. Do you see the intentionality there? It's about training, it's about guiding, it's about direct, directing your children. Godly discipline is not the same as punishment. It is not ultimately punitive. Now, godly discipline might require punishments from time to time. But godly discipline is aimed at their growth and their progress and their development and ultimately their holiness. So it's not just flying off the handle and lashing out in anger and just giving punishments every time there's something wrong. It's got to be more intentional than that. It's a type of parenting and a type of disciplining that involves lots of explaining, involves instruction, involves guidance, involves you sitting with your children and saying, here's what you did. Here's why that's wrong. Here's what's right. Do you understand? If not, go back to point one. If you do, who did this affect? Do we need to apologize to somebody? And we're teaching them confession and repentance. It affected God. It affected others. And finally, how can we correct this next time? How do we grow? How do we learn? How do we not continue in these ways? So that's godly discipline. The last thing, and we'll close here, is the word instruct. He says that we need to discipline and instruct them in the ways of the Lord. The word instruction means teaching or warning. So the idea here for parents 
is that we are using God's word to teach our children what is true, what is right, and what is good, and using God's word to warn them against what is false, what is wrong, and what is evil. It's both sides of that. We're instructing our kids. We're teaching them from the word of God. We see this all the way back in the Old Testament. Here's Deuteronomy 6, famously verses 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Pause for a moment. This was systematic theology 101 for the children of God, for the Israelites under Moses. So he's saying, this is what, who God is. This is what it looks like to relate to God. And then out of that, he says this in verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So God teaches the adults who he is and how they relate to him. And then he says, and you should go and teach your children diligently these very things. Lots of Christian parents look to the church to disciple their children. They think I'm in charge of paying the bills and caring for everything, getting them to school and sports and all that stuff. And then I send them off to the church for an hour and a half. And that's where they're going to be discipled and learn about God. And it's wonderful to be plugged into a healthy church that can do some of that. But that, the church's role in your kid's discipleship is not a substitute for your role. It should be a supplement to your role. The responsibility to disciple children falls ultimately on us, on parents. They're God's gift to us, and we are responsible to teach them and to train them. Now, there's so much to be said here, so let me just share two ideas. Number one, model for them. You've probably heard the old adage, some things are taught and some things are caught. Okay, some things are taught, some things are just caught. You're seeing, you're learning from a model in your life. To give some recognition and honor my father today, I need to say this. When I got serious with Jesus when I was 20 years old, I had zero questions about what that meant. I had zero questions about what it looked like to begin following Jesus. And the simple reason for that is because my dad spent my entire childhood modeling it for me and instructing, but modeling it for me. Up every morning, I'd walk out sometimes early in the morning, see my dad on his knees praying, Bible open in front of him, cup of coffee, every single day without fail, plugged into the church, sharing his faith with other parents we'd meet, people in the community, helping homeless. I mean, my dad was just there. He was serving the Lord. When I got saved, it was like, oh, if I want to be serious with Jesus, I just got to do what my dad did. The other thing that my dad modeled well was repentance. And I think that too many of us think that the only way our children are going to learn to be godly is through our righteousness. But godliness looks like through our repentance. And by that, I mean, when we fail and parents, we do fail. We actually go to our children and we confess that. And we ask for their forgiveness if necessary. And we ask God to forgive us in that moment. And our children there are learning about the gospel. That it's not about being perfect. It's about confessing our sins and turning from our sins and experiencing God's forgiveness. So model it for them. And number two, mentor them. What I mean by that is we need to help our children navigate through the complexities of life. A mentor is somebody who's been there already and you can come to them and say, help me. I don't know what to do in this situation. And they're able to guide you through that and help you navigate. What a beautiful picture of parenting. As our children are growing and maturing, we can enter in with them and we can ask them what's going on. What challenges are you having at school or with relationships or I mean, really anything under the sun? What theological questions do you have? What doesn't make sense to you about God? And enter in and help our children navigate through the complexities of life. Now, to do that, of course, takes time, 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 and talking, 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 talking. And so a lot of our effectiveness at mentoring our children is going to come down to being intentional to be with our children. 
Now, just like last week, I'll end by asking this question. Can't you imagine how amazing our households would be if this was all at play in our homes? If all of our children honored and obeyed and respected their parents, and if every parent refrained from provoking their children and instead led their children with gentleness and patience and grace, training their children in the way that they should go, training their children on the path of blessing before God, wouldn't that be amazing? May it be so. It's an encouraging thought. But the discouraging thought comes when we look at what our track record has been so far, right? Because none of us have been perfect as children or as parents. We've all failed to live up to this vision. Children know they have not been fully pleasing to the Lord because they have not obeyed their parents in everything. And parents know that they've had many interactions with their children that are, were not marked by the sort of gentleness and patience and love that God calls us to. So the, the question is, what do we do with that? Well, we remember that because of Jesus, we are not left without hope. The cross of Jesus, that, that means for you kids, that all of your obedience can be forgiven. Every time you failed, that can all be forgiven and not held over you anymore as you trust in Jesus as your Savior and Lord. And it's not just that, kids. There's hope that in Jesus, he can help you to become more obedient to your parents every day now going forward. And for us parents, the cross of Jesus means that all of our impatience, all of our selfishness, all of our harshness, all of our indifference instead of intentionality can be forgiven. As we confess our sins to the Lord and we seek forgiveness from Jesus, everything in our past can be forgiven and we get a brand new start today. And not only that, but because of Jesus, we can have the power and the grace and the strength that we need to start doing better tomorrow. You're not going to find a message of hope like that anywhere else in the world. Outside of Jesus Christ and the good news of the gospel, there is no hope like that. And so I want to encourage all of us in closing today, no matter how well or how poorly you've done in the past, look to Jesus experience his grace and his forgiveness, and also experience his grace and his power to move forward and do a better job of what God's calling us to do. And as we do, we're going to be blessed, and our children are going to be blessed, and our grandchildren are going to be blessed, and the Lord is going to be glorified. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.